Please do, if you have a Bible, please do keep it open. Um, not all the verses will be on the screen um, as we look at this uh, passage together. As we, before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Father God, we do pray that you would speak to us, uh, that we would be uh, ministered to uh, by your word, and that we would be fed and built up to see your glory and goodness and that we would respond to you in repentance and faith, that we would be built up to love you and to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder, perhaps, as you think about uh, the picture behind me, is this maybe what comes to mind when you think of the phrase, the day of the Lord? Uh, This picture is an oil painting uh, by the English artist John Martin. Thank you. It was once painted uh, between, well, it was painted between 1851 and 1853. Uh, if, you, if you want to see this p- painting in person, it's being displayed in the, in the Tate Britain uh, Gallery in London. And the, the painting, it's entitled uh, the, the Great Day of His Wrath. As the artist tries to, he tries to encapture the idea of uh, the final day, the, the last day. Or as the Bible might describe it in many places, the day of the Lord. However, as, as you read through uh, the book of Joel, uh, you, you do start to see actually there is a lot more to the day of the Lord. Uh, uh, Joel, uh, written, which some commentators would say around 400 BC, although no one's really entirely sure, uh, the day of the Lord is, is not an, an easy thing to define. It comes up in the book of Joel, but also comes up in other parts of the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. It really has a a much broader and a much fuller meaning, both for the people of Joel's time and for us today. As the day of the Lord, it has, if you like, layers to it. Layers which, in every sense, should lead us closer to the Lord. And so as, as we look at Joel chapter 2 together this evening, uh, I'd like us to see that, that ultimately the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And so there should be uh, two responses. Firstly, we should see the locust as a warning to us. And then as a result of that, give your whole heart to God. So, so see the, the locust as a warning to us and give your whole heart to to God. As you look back at, if you've got your Bible open, you'll see chapter 1, there are many themes which are repeated again in chapter 2. One of those themes at the start of chapter 1 is that element of of wake up, or uh, as it says in verse 5, wake up, or perhaps before that, listen, listen up, as Joel calls God's people to listen. In this context, he's speaking to the people of Judah in the southern kingdom of Israel, and he calls them to listen up. Listen up because the locusts are coming. As he says in chapter 2, in verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Sound the alarm because the day of the Lord is coming. An invasion is coming. Joel, he wants to 
amplify his message, the same message that he said in chapter 1. He wants to repeat it and amplify it even more. He wants to, to shock his listeners because the warning, it is not against the foreign nations. It is against God's people because as it says in verse 1, it is against Zion. That is the city of God in Jerusalem. The Lord is sending locusts. He's sending judgment to Jerusalem. He's sending an invasion there. And we know it's the Lord because if you look down in verse 11, who is sending this army? Well, the Lord is the head of the army of locusts. He is at the head of it. Because the people, the people have broken covenant with the Lord and therefore they have rejected him. They've completely rejected the Lord and they are under judgment. Judgment is coming. As instead of loving and obeying the Lord and living in good relationship with him, his people, they have abandoned him. We don't know exactly what it is that they have done. In other prophets, for example, you know exactly what the sin is. But in Joel, we're not told exactly what it is. But they have turned their back on the Lord. And therefore, they're called to tremble. Verse 3, tremble. Because as it says in verse 2, it's the day of darkness and gloom. Tremble because judgment is coming and the Lord is bringing it. As the locusts are really a foreshadow of the final day, they are a little bit of a, of a taster, if you like, of the final day. They're a small-scale sample of the last day reality. And what is the picture that Joel paints? Well, we see in verse 3, uh, the Lord speaks of the locust by saying this. He says, before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. In other words, the locusts will consume everything. They will take everything. God's people have broken God's covenant and therefore they experience the, the covenantal curses outlined in Deuteronomy 28. One of those is locusts, plagues of locusts, which will consume the land like fire. Fire being symbolic of judgment. They will consume everything. As the Lord says at the end of verse 3, nothing escapes them. Absolutely nothing. And therefore it's a warning. It's a warning that when calamity strikes as a result of living in a world under judgment, then it should make us ask a question. Are we right with the Lord? Are we in right standing with God? It tells us not to take sin lightly, not to take God lightly, but to turn from sin and to turn to God, that our relationship with him would be restored. And that was Jesus' words to his onlookers, no doubt shocking words to his onlookers in Luke 13, when the tower of Siloam fell on people and he responded, Jesus responded to those looking on saying, do you think they were more guilty than all the others in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Because when disaster strikes, it is a warning 
to each of us. It's a warning to each of us to get right with God. The urgency to get right with God. Because judgment is, it is a reality. Tim Keller, a recently retired pastor in New York, he said that when 9-11 hit, that everything just stopped. The people of New York stopped. The busy New Yorkers who are workaholics stopped. And they stopped to think and reflect. Because on church that Sunday, it was standing room only. Standing room because everyone was asking the question, why? Why has this happened? And yet, as many people were arriving with a mixture of grief and probably anger, the Lord, even in such an event as 9-11, well, he was at work. He was calling people to himself, calling people to repentance. And it's the same for, for our lives too. Because when we think about it, when disaster happens, we may ask the, the first question, why, Lord? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me right now in my life? And whilst we don't know exactly why certain things happen, why specific things happen in a sinful and fallen world, we can't answer that exact question. And yet we do know that the Lord is at work in those times of calamity and disaster. Because he's calling people to himself. And so maybe, perhaps if we experience disaster, if we experience calamity in our lives, maybe like the loss of a loved one, or we lose our job, our health goes downhill, we have a relationship breakdown, we're struggling in school, maybe with, with friends, we're being rejected by others, we maybe are struggling with loneliness or singleness or struggling in marriage. We might not know exactly why all this is happening, but we do know that the Lord is at work in our lives. He's calling us back to himself. He's calling us to be closer to himself. As we cry out to the Lord in our pain and anguish, and he hears our cries. As in the darkness of of pain and disaster, we meet the Lord in a far deeper way a far richer way, a better way that we, than we might if we had a, an easy life, if you like. And nobody wants to go through pain, but the Lord will meet us in that place. And so in that sense, if you like, if we go through experiences like that, that is our personal day of the Lord. As God breaks into our life in a very powerful way, he reminds us that, that life is is fleeting in Ecclesiastes. It is but a breath. But God is eternal. He's eternal and he is all powerful. Because as you look there from verse 4 to 9, you see that the the locusts are, well, they're described as a mighty and powerful army. Joel, he uses terrifying images of an almighty, limitless uh, army. It's like a scene from something out of Lord of the Rings, perhaps, where you see the the vast numbers of soldiers unable to to count them all, and they are just ravaging the land. As you see in verse 4 to 5, they're described as as horses that gallop, like cavalry, like like those on chariots, and the people are terrified. In verse 6, 
As it says there in verse 7, that they, they charge, that the locusts, they charge like warriors and scale walls like soldiers. In other words, they are an unstoppable force. It's like an apocalyptic scene, like an end of the world scene. And in fact, that is exactly the picture picked up in Revelation 9. As John says in Revelation 9 verse 7, that the locusts look like horses prepared for battle. That is an end of the world kind of picture. In Revelation 9, it's a symbol of judgment. The Lord echoes very much the locust plague that was put on Egypt in the eighth plague when the locusts came down. And then in the ninth plague, the ninth plague was that of darkness. And we see both of these in verse 10 of Joel. As he says, before the locusts, The earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. As the Lord, he brings judgment first in the locusts and then in the darkness. The Lord brings darkness and an earthquake as judgment falls on the people. This is the day of the Lord. But if we know our Bibles well, where else might we see this picture? Where else does it remind us of when we think of similar events? A day when darkness covers the land, a day when the earth shook and the rocks split, a day when judgment fell. This is the day of the Lord when Jesus took the judgment upon himself at Golgotha on the cross. This is the day of the Lord. The day when we see God's glory and salvation through judgment. And so if you like, that is a a second lens of the day of the Lord, where Jesus is on the cross. And yet there's also another one. And so perhaps we may ask the question, well, what exactly is the day of the Lord? Well, firstly, there is the first lens. That That is really... Uh, what was happening then, the episode in history. It was the, at that time, it was the invasion of the locusts. So that's the first lens. Then there's the, the second one. That was what was about to happen. Uh, we think of uh, Jesus on the cross. And then there's the, there's the third lens, if you like. That is what will happen at the end of time, when the Lord will call everyone everywhere to account one, one person, R.L. Alden, he describes the, the day of the Lord like this. He says, the day of the Lord is any day God steps into history to do a special work, whether in judgment or deliverance. Let me read that again. The day of the Lord is any day God steps into history to do a special work, whether in judgment or deliverance. Because all these events in history present us with the sobering reality that it all leads to that one day when we all will stand before the Lord. Because as we see in the invasion of the locusts, it cannot be stopped. The Lord is in charge. He is ultimately the one who will be judge. As he says in verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. 
The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? As the locusts are sent by the Lord, and he is the head of the army. And this mighty army leader is truly a picture of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19, when the Lord Jesus will come as the leader of the army of his people to judge the living and the dead. The day when he will bring salvation to all his people, when he will welcome them into his presence for eternal bliss, and the day when he will reject all those who reject him to eternal punishment in hell. As Joel says, the day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And the answer is no one. No one can endure it. As when it comes to the last day, the day when we stand before the Lord in judgment, what are you going to say to him? What can you say to him? I I tried my best. I've done as much as I can. No, we can't, we can't possibly stand before the Lord and say that. We can't stand before a holy God and say that. We can only say, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is that what you will say before the Lord on that last day? It must be. That must be your answer. But if it is not your answer today, then won't you come to Jesus to know that love, to know his forgiveness, to know the certainty that he brings, that he offers salvation to each one of us this evening, to each one of us who will turn to him and receive forgiveness, receive eternal life, the free gift of eternal life. Because as we see, the locusts, they are a warning. They're a warning to each one of us of where we stand before the Lord. And then, really as a result, the point is to give your whole heart to God. In this second section, we see really the heart of God for his people. As he says in verse 12, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. The Lord says it's, it's never too late. It's never too late to come to the Lord. I spoke with someone a few months ago who must be in their 80s, and they said that very same thing. It's never too late, is it? And that is so true. It is never too late to come to the Lord, to come back to him, with all your heart. As when it comes to our lives, the Lord, he doesn't want virtuous acts, displays of contrition, if you like, to other people. No, he wants our hearts. He wants all that we are, that we would give that to him. And the Apostle Paul, he he talks about uh, fake repentance and, and true repentance in 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow, if you like, is maybe 
someone has been caught in something, and so they feel bad about it. They feel bad about having been caught. Or maybe they feel bad because maybe they they might say, uh, I feel bad and I've let myself down. But godly sorrow, uh, godly sorrow says, actually, I've, I've sinned against the Lord. To quote the psalmist David, to you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. And therefore, we, we turn back to God because we realize that we have broken God's heart. We have broken our Heavenly Father's heart. And that is why we turn back to him. Not because we want to show to other people, but because we know that the Lord loves us. That's why we turn to him. And that is the true driver for true repentance. As Joel says in verse 13, it rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Why are God's people to turn back to God? Why are you and I to turn back to God when we stray and do our own thing? Because the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That is the heart of God to us, extended to us in the Lord Jesus. As Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus shows us the Father's heart. He extends that to us. It also perhaps smashes the the caricature, if you like, of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. The Old Testament God being angry and wrathful and, and the New Testament God being a God of love. But we see here that God is angry with his people because he loves them. He is angry with them because he loves them. They have broken their covenant with them and therefore, therefore they experience their, the, the judgment of God, the judgment of God that would lead the people back to God, that they would know his love afresh. Because the Lord, he is jealous for his people. He loves them. He wants his people to come back to him. It's much like the relationship of a, of a husband to a wife. And in fact, Joel, the book of Joel comes straight after the book of Hosea in the Bible. A book where the, the message is that despite the people's disobedience, despite their spiritual adultery, that in love, the Lord pursues his people that he would buy them back and bring them back to himself, that the Lord would show his love in that. And we see that faithful love of God again here in Joel, as like a father to a prodigal son who has run away, the Lord extends his arms of love to his people, that they would return to him and know his loving embrace again. As the Lord says, give me your heart. I don't want torn clothes. I don't want you to put dust on your head as he did in the Old Testament. I want your heart. I want your affections, your desires. I wonder as we think about that, does that describe us this evening? Does that describe you tonight? Is your whole heart for the Lord? Or is there perhaps a room in your heart that you will not let the Lord enter? Have you given your whole heart to the Lord? Not because it's a burden, but because you love the Lord and he loves you. And so therefore we, we're called just to surrender all that we have, all that we are to the Lord, to give all of our hearts to him, to not hold anything back from him. 
to not keep anything ourselves, but to give him all that we are. As the Lord spoke to his people then, that same way, he speaks to us today. That we would give him our hearts and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we would bow before him, whatever that might be. That we would give all of ourselves to him in worship. And that's what Joel calls the people to do. He calls them to worship, as he says in verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. This is the Lord's desire for his people then, and for us really today, that we would, we would bow before the Lord in worship, that we would come to him. The people are, are called to, to come back to, to God in repentance. The, the first trumpet was a, a warning, a warning of an invasion. And the second trumpet is a call to repentance. To come before the Lord in in true humility, not in false humility, but in true heartfelt humility. And to repent, to turn from sin and to be restored to God. As Joel identifies various people in verse 16 and calls all the people to, to come to the Lord. To give themselves to the Lord in heartfelt repentance and worship. The elders, as the leaders of God's people, were there to come, there to come to the Lord. And then, then we have the children. Then we also have the, the women nursing their children, and even those who are newly married, that they would come before the Lord in repentance. Because Joel's message is even the things that might perhaps seem urgent, like nursing a child or having just got married, well, put those things on hold. Put those things on hold. Because you want to come, we need to come before the Lord in repentance. And then we see even the priests or, or ministers, they are to come out. As it says in verse 17, they are, they are called to weep before the Lord, to cry out to him, saying, spare your people. In other words, they are to call out to the Lord for mercy on behalf of the people. They are to represent the people, to call out to God for mercy. Isn't that perhaps something that we might want to see more of today as we think of ministers of God? Ministers of God who perhaps will think less of what people think of them in the world and far more about what the Lord thinks of them because they will have to give an account to him. Because as Joel says, for everyone, everywhere, it's never too late. It's never too late. Never too late to turn back because we know that as the the apostle Paul says he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for all who will believe for everyone from everywhere from every background from every tongue tribe nation from every place from every nation from every social standing everyone who believes will be saved We can enter God's presence today with boldness because we know that for those of us who are in Christ, who are trusting in him, there is no condemnation. None. Because we have a true and better high priest, the Lord Jesus, who intercedes for us even now. As Paul says in Romans 8, 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, 
who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So perhaps, are you carrying burdens this evening? Are you carrying weight on your back tonight? Maybe weight of of sin, of shame, of worry, of guilt, of anxiety, of exhaustion, of uncertainty of what will happen tomorrow or the next day. The call is to, to give it to the Lord, to trust him with it, to give it to our Heavenly Father, because through Jesus, he intercedes for us, that we have boldness and a confidence that comes through Jesus as Jesus intercedes for us to God. For as Joel says in verse 14, he says, for for who knows, he may even leave us with a blessing. As we might wonder, well, there is a material blessing, but perhaps, perhaps there's more to it than that. We might wonder what blessing is Joel talking about? What blessing will the Lord leave? Well, if you want to find out what that is, you need to come back next week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your amazing love for us. We thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious and compassionate. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you through the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that as we think of this, as we see this passage, there is a a warning as well, a warning to turn back to you if there is anything in our lives that grieves you, if we have yet to give all of our hearts to you, if there is anything that we are holding on to, that we would give that to you. We want to live lives that please you, Lord. We want to live lives which glorify you. Help us, Lord, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.